like to invite you to turn with me to today's scripture. I'll be reading from Acts 12, verses 1 through 24, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
but the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. This is the word of God. As Americans, we have civil rights and civic rights, and those rights enable us to speak and to act when we see an injustice. Uh, uh, the rights we have as, an American, as American citizens enable us to respond to what we perceive to be injustice in our society, even injustice against ourselves. And we may feel compelled. Have you ever felt compelled to speak or to act when an injustice has been committed, especially against you? Or, or against people or a cause that you find so important. You feel compelled to do something. Uh, I, I, I know in, in, in recent uh, events in our country in the last several months, in the last few years, uh, many people have felt compelled to act and compelled to speak over events that have taken place. Well, what does Christianity say about responding to injustice? Especially injustice committed against itself, which the Bible calls persecution. Well, today we're actually going to see what the first Christians did when faced with injustice against themselves. What the first Christians actually did and why. And I want you to catch this. It's really important because the results were pretty profound. Acts 12, chapter 24, uh, Acts Chapter 12, verse 24 says, it was the end of the passage, that when persecution struck again, I'm quoting Luke, the word of God increased and multiplied. And what I want to focus on today is the idea that when injustice advances, God's truth doesn't retreat. Peter's remarkable deliverance is sandwiched by Luke in between these two episodes about Herod. Luke does this a lot in Acts. Uh, you'll read a chapter and there'll be a sandwich. You'll have a theme and then another theme and then we go back to that same theme. So you have two episodes of Herod, but in the middle, it talks about Peter and what happened to him. And this is a remarkable, miraculous deliverance. But let's talk about Herod for a second. This is Herod Agrippa I, the younger Herod Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was reigning in Palestine. Reigning is a loaded term because it was always under Rome's approval. He was like a, a vassal king, a servant king. But Herod the Great was reigning when Jesus was born. Um, this is also the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was reigning when Jesus was crucified. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded. So this is the, the grandson and the nephew of the two other Herods. And he's less, he was less tyrannical than his grandfather. And, and he was less contemptible than his uncle. Uh, actually, the Jews, the Jews kind of got along with this Herod. Uh, this Herod, uh, had, he, he had an affection for the Jewish customs. He had, he had an affection for uh, the Judaic religion, uh, the, the feasts the religious observances, uh, the traditions. So, knowing uh, that the religious establishment in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, right, the religious Jewish Senate, knowing that they were anti-Christian, uh, well, 
that was all Herod needed to know uh, to decide for himself that he was going to be anti-Christian as well to gain their favor. And that's what you see happening in this passage in the first three verses of chapter 12. This Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And we see the second Christian martyrdom right here. This is the first apostle uh, to be executed for his faith. You saw Stephen executed and at the end of Acts chapter 7. Well, now we see that James, James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, uh, James is executed by Herod. We also find out that when Herod saw that that pleased the top-ranking Jewish officials, that they loved that, well, he decided to do it again, and he arrests Peter. And his intention, Luke tells us, was to execute Peter. And it takes place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and during the Passover. And and because he appreciates the Jewish customs and their religion, and he wants to get in with them, he he respects their law. And he's not going to... He's not going to enact a pers- uh, an execution during Passover. Right? So he arrests Peter, and Peter is under high lock and key. This is, you know, maximum security situation for Peter. Very, very valuable prisoner. And Peter is waiting uh, to be executed until Passover has, well, passed over. And so here you have another outbreak of violent oppression against the early church. But this time it's not religious. When Saul of Tarsus persecuted the Christians, that was a religious persecution. When the Sanhedrin earlier had imprisoned Peter and John and beat them and told them, don't talk about this Jesus. It was a religious persecution. This is a political one. Herod's about politics here as he goes after Peter. Now, while Herod is bringing calamity upon the church, what do you see Christians doing? Christians are doing what? Praying and waiting. And that is the essence of the early church's response to injustice. In verse 12, it says that while Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. And we can only speculate as to what the church was actually praying for and how they were praying. But one scholar points out uh, that perhaps they were not praying in faith for Peter's release. And the proof of that is they were shocked and amazed when they saw him at Mary's door, at Mary's gate. They were shocked. They didn't expect that. Um, it's actually kind of a comical situation, isn't it? Uh, they're praying, they're earn- the, the word is earnestly, they're praying earnestly, and, and you can imagine the scene. I mean, Peter is about to be executed, they've just lost James, these are, these are pillars of the early church in Jerusalem. And, and they're, they're in a room and it's at night and they're praying earnestly. And, and they hear a knock, they, keep, they hear knocking and knocking and knocking, and, and who's going to get up? It's, it's a prayer meeting, nobody wants to get up to answer the door, so... Mary sends out one of her servants and Rhoda goes down to the gate and she's so excited when she hears Peter's voice. She doesn't even open the door. She just runs back in and they're praying there earnestly. And she says, Peter's at the door. Oh, be quiet. We're praying for Peter. No, I'm telling you, Peter's at the door. It's no, it's Luke records that they said to her, it is his angel. And that that's a very odd phrase. And scholars say it either means that they, it probably means that they're thinking Peter's already been executed. And, and, and it, it is either a ghost or his own spirit 
or, or it could be his guardian, guardian angel. Regardless, it seems obvious that they were not prepared for that, uh, that they, they're not praying in perfect faith, that, that they are doubting as they pray, and they're not willing to believe that he's actually at the door. But in fact, they're still praying, and, and that's what we really have to pull away from their response, is that even in their doubt, their strategy was to pray. And John Stott, the, the pastor and theologian, he contrasted at this point the power of the world and the power of the church. He wrote, Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. How did the early Christians come to take this approach? How is it that their first response to threat and danger was to pray? I think very simply they learned it from their master. They learned it from Jesus who even when he was oppressed and accused did not open his mouth against his oppressors but actually taught them how to pray. And when they asked him, how do we pray, Lord? The first thing he said in Matthew chapter 6 was, you begin like this, our Father who art in heaven. And just right in those words, you have a call to submission. Submission first and foremost to God. God as your loving protector and defender. Our Father in heaven. As you begin recognizing that, that the creator of the universe has adopted you. And loves you. And that your protection and your identity and your standing begin and end with him. Well, you stop relying on your own wits. You stop trusting in your own understanding. And in your own strength. Jesus also said in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. You pray this way, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only do we submit to God as a loving, protective father, but we expect God to advance his cause in the world. After all, he's the king. Right? So there are other kings. There are, king, there are human kings and human rulers and presidents and senators and law enforcement. But he is the king. And so we are called to pray for his justice and for his peace by whatever means he and his providence and sovereignty chooses to enact whether it's a miracle or legislation or any form of secondary causes by which he uh, uh, by which he enforces his justice through human government and accountability but he is the king and we pray and seek for his justice and his peace and and the psalms especially we looked at this last summer the early psalms especially psalms three through six uh, the early psalms they they give you a picture of a morning and evening cycle of prayer where, where in the evenings the psalmist submits to God and in the mornings the psalmist expects God to act. This, this cycle in the psalms of submission and expectation. You submit to God as the king, as your heavenly father, and then you expect him to work according to his plan. 
And, and the Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, he, he backed up what we see the early church doing right, there, right here. Uh, he established it even further. He said this to Christians. Wait a minute, where am I? Oh, that was right. Paul said to Christians when he was speaking to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is profound, that, that, that the leaders of the early church encouraged Christians to not only pray for and intercede for, but to give thanks for tyrants like Herod and Caesar. Not, not just people they didn't vote for because they didn't vote for them, but tyrants. And what we see here in, 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 Paul's, in Paul's teaching is the will of God... God's end game is that people would know him. That's God's desire, that people will come to know who Jesus is and what Jesus offers. And the conditions for that are a peaceable society where Christians are able to live quiet, respectable lives in freedom with integrity so that they can tell other people about this Jesus who died for them. Peaceable conditions, in general, are needed for Christians to go about doing what Christians do in the name of God. When we're always locked up, when we're always sidelined and ignored, people aren't listening. People aren't watching. And so Christians pray for peace in society so that we can live peaceful lives so that people can see God's light shining through us. Of course, there is persecution. And of course, God works in amazing ways, as we see in Acts chapter 12, through persecution. But the norm is not to pray to get beat up or to pray to get ignored or laughed at or marginalized in society. The norm is pray for peace and pray for our leaders to establish peace so that we can live the lives that God has called us to live. And when you begin to pray for your leaders, even for the ones you don't like, when you begin to pray for your leaders, something happens. You sober up and begin to develop a humble respect for leaders. And Peter himself would talk about this later on. He almost, except for one more point in Acts chapter 15, Peter doesn't appear again in the book of Acts, right? Because he escapes from Mary's house. He, 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 he runs away from the prayer meeting because he doesn't want to get arrested again. He runs away from the prayer meeting. And, and except for one, the one thing we're going to look at in Acts chapter 15, we, we don't see Peter again. He, maybe because, because the threats for his life, he, he, kind, of, he kind of fades into obscurity um, in the rest of Luke's history. Uh, and the focus you're going to see in the next several weeks is now going to be on, on the Apostle Paul and the mission to the Gentiles. Okay. But... At one point, Peter wrote two letters to Christians, and, and this is amazing. This is what Peter, who was arrested by the Sanhedrin and nearly executed by Herod under the authority of Caesar, this is what Peter had to say. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter wrote, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So faith, the kind of faith the Bible talks about. Faith expresses a prayer life that submits to God's will and expects God to act. So as citizens of the world, because we're all citizens of this world. As citizens of the world, we may promote justice in our homes. We may promote justice in our community and in our state and in our country by all means. Um, but as Christians, you're, you have a higher calling than that. If you're a Christian, you are also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that calls you to a higher standard. That calls you to the standard of praying, Father in heaven, thy will be done. Regardless of what's happening right now, regardless of how, what, what's going on on the ground and how I'm feeling and what I'm seeing, Father, your will be done, your peace, your justice. Of course, we may act as citizens of the world. Of course, we may act and we may mobilize and we may speak and we may offer commentary and share our opinions and even argue and debate our opinions, but always as God allows. We act, we speak as God directs. So our prayers, and, and by the way, praying is not passive. Praying is active. Our prayers are the basis of our efforts. As Christians, our prayers are not an afterthought to our political and social agendas. Our prayers are the foundation of everything that we do. Our prayers are the foundation of everything we, that we say, not the other way around. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but, but, but as Americans... We have rights. We have a whole bill of them. And some people suffered and bled for, for those rights. So, so we have the right to march. And, and we have the right to picket. And we have the right to call the local news. You do. You have the right to call the local news and tell them about some injustice that's taking place. So that all this attention will be drawn to that injustice. And maybe, maybe... Um, the leadership structure will recant because of all the public pressure. As American citizens, you have the right to do that. There are places in the world where you'd be killed if you even opened your mouth. But you have the right to do these things here. You can post your opinion on social media with impunity. You can say whatever you want on social media with impunity. So, yes, you have rights. We have rights. But here's what I'm asking you to think about this week. Have you put your faith in your civic rights? Is the Bill of Rights your object of faith? Or is it the God of justice? If reacting is your first response, if speaking and acting are your first response to injustice, to unfairness, even persecution, you're really leaving God out of the equation. 
And if that's what you're doing, then your cries for justice and your efforts to effect change, well, they're really about you, aren't they? They're really about you and what you want and how you feel and how you've been hurt. Not so much about what God wants. Maybe not even about what other people need. Are your cries for justice and your effects for change about God? Are they about you, friend? Drawing attention to yourself, no matter what the cause is, no matter how right you may be, drawing attention to yourself makes you a self-appointed judge. And, and look, nobody wants to be compared with Herod. But, but in a sense, aren't you kind of aligning yourself with him? Watch this. We find out later that Herod, all right, Herod's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, right, the big political brouhaha. Uh, with people under his tetrarchy, right? They need food and, and he, he, he needs influence and they don't like each other, but they work out an agreement and, and they just pour it on. You know, he shows up for them and, and Luke tells us they just pour it on for him. And incidentally, historically, the Jewish historian Josephus gives a parallel account that corroborates what Luke is saying. You can look it up. And uh, the people are pouring it out. And, and they say to Herod, Ah, oh, the voice of a God and not a man. And he loves it. And Luke points out, and so does Josephus, Luke po- with different words, Luke points out he did not give glory to God. He absorbed the glory for himself. It was about him. And we find out that he died an ugly death. And Luke tells us, regardless of what happened physiologically, biologically with his death, Josephus indicates it was a stomach problem, actually. Regardless of that, Luke says, theologically, God brought justice upon Herod. So here's my point, okay? Um, When you make justice, when you make responding to injustice about you and not about God, you essentially do what Herod does. You rob God of the glory that only he deserves. You rob the just judge of his right to justice. Jesus also said in the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray, hallowed be your name. We are never to forget that glory resides with God alone and not with us. It is the essence of injustice to rob God of his right to judge as he determines. And then you become part of the vicious cycle of injustice, friends. You know, the only path to true justice is allowing God to be the initiator of it. In Acts chapter 12, what do you see? You see Christians waiting and praying. Now, that's not all they did. We know from Acts chapter 6 that they mobilized when there was injustice and inequality taking place within the church. But we see here when the injustice is coming politically, socially from the outside, the first thing they do is they wait and they pray. And who is doing all the acting in Acts chapter 12? It's God. It's God who rescues Peter from prison. It's God who brings justice to Herod. And it's God who Luke tells us in verse 24, increased and multiplied his word. The the reason the church could pray and the reason Peter was able to sleep. Did you notice that when he was rescued, he was asleep between two guards. The reason Peter could sleep the night before his coming execution 
And the reason Christians could pray is because they knew that God is the just judge. Regardless of what happened to them, they knew that God was the just judge. The greatest proof that God will judge injustice is the cross. Think about it this way. Your sins, your sins deserve justice. And Jesus hung there to absorb the justice for your sins. So if God judged himself for your sin, why not trust God with other people's sin? The greatest proof that God will vindicate you if your sins were judged with Jesus on the cross, the greatest proof that God will vindicate you is the empty tomb. Jesus' escape from the chains of death are proof that God has vindicated you when Jesus served your sentence on the cross. And that's why you can pray and wait For God's justice. So when injustice advances, God's truth does not retreat. And my prayer for us as a church is that through trusting faith and waiting prayer, we will establish a healthy foundation for responding to what we see in the community and what we see in the world and in our nation. Trusting faith, waiting prayer, not an afterthought, but the foundation, the basis of our response to injustice and our pursuit of justice. If Jesus hung on the cross to receive the just sentence that you deserve, then why not let God work to accomplish justice in other people? Let's pray.